Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by and so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of fascinating stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. The show is supported by Illustration X. Go and take a look at their incredible global range of illustration and animation portfolios now illustrationx.com. If you like the music for the show, go and listen to Dirty Freud over on Spotify and all good music platforms now. Today I'm joined by the fantastic Sam De Cruz. Sam is a fashion designer and artist, among many other things. She is also the founder of the magnificent Child of. Child of was founded to have conversations that matter using art and creativity to explore such themes as trouble with addiction owing to her own experiences of growing up with a father who was dependent on alcohol. At times dark, this is also an enlightening conversation that digs into the whole theme of managing our monsters, dealing with the things that we feel are unsurmountable in our lives using creativity. Hello and welcome to the show. How are you doing? I hope you're well. Welcome back. What did you think of James Brown? If you haven't listened to that episode yet, do go back and check it out. It was a huge timely lift for me, going through uh, something of a, a lull. Not even a lull, just a a real hefty, challenging quiet spell. And all the things that come with quiet spells, which is self-doubt, lack of confidence that this thing will turn around. Is it the end of the road? Is it the end of the industry? Is it the end of my business? Is it the end of my time in the arts? All scary things when you're going through it. And I'm still there. I'm still there to a degree. There have been some wonderful... Um, alleviations there's been a couple of nice little jobs there's been some clicks and pops of something that feels like it might start to once again purr but until it does you're always just looking over your shoulder waiting for that next bill to come and thinking oh come on i don't like this pressure it's not healthy i've got one of those brains that just i don't do particularly well with financial pressure and i don't know if many of us do I don't think it's healthy to the human condition to be chasing our tails, you know, and going through all that. Oh, it's, it's not a good experience. I'm going to do an episode. I keep promising this and I need to get my ass in gear and do it, but I'm going to do an episode on that very topic. But anyway, how are things? Let me know on the social, at Ben Talonport, at Ben Talon. I would love to hear your feedback on previous episodes. So... Why James Brown was a, a huge lift to me it was, um, well, not just me. There's been a good amount of years on this one. It's been a popular episode and the feedback has been brilliant. So thank you if you've taken the time to do that. And do do that because, do you know, it's funny as a podcast listener, I, I don't really do it. You know, I listen to the shows that I listen to. I don't tend to feedback unless it's an episode that really, really knocks me sideways in the best way. Um, and even then, I don't always do it. I think there's a tendency to take it for granted. And it's maybe par for the course of doing a kind of audio broadcast format, whether it's radio or whether it's podcasting. But it's nice when people do. 
So if you do think that you love an episode, do let me know. Because like anything else, you can feel on your own doing this thing sometimes. And it's really lovely when, when people take the time to pass on their, their thoughts and even their criticisms. You know, that's nice too. I, I become a better interviewer whenever the, the criticism is considered. Much like as designers, as artists, as whatever it is that we do, when the criticism is heartfelt and it's done in such a way that it's to help you get better, then I think it's very welcome. I think it has to be. It's one of the ways we get better, you know? Anyway, big thank you to the founding supporter of the show, Illustration X. You can go and take a look at those guys and all the wonderful things they're up to. They're a recent B Corp, which is a really good thing. They're always doing great work. They supported the show, helped me get it off the ground, and uh, they've got such a vital, vibrant range now of illustration portfolios and animation portfolios. And like everyone else, they've you know you kind of have to these days. They've bled out into NFTs and gifs and live and mural and all this great stuff so if you want to have a look at there and get a real taste of what's going on in the illustration world then i recommend heading over there now illustrationx.com and they're always doing great work with the likes of the directory of illustration the world illustration awards running conjunction by the dia and hang on dia directory of illustration doi my apologies <laughs> that's the american um, equivalent of our own lovely association of illustrators who used to support the show also and are still friends of the show so go and check out what illustration x are up to over at illustrationx.com or at we are illustration x on social media so james brown like i say it was a timely reminder of what it looks like to make your own way in this industry to force conversations to be aggressive in the best possible way, in championing yourself in a way that's comfortable to you. Um, James made a, made a fanzine back in Leeds called Attack on the Zag, and then he, uh, by the age of 22, was editing the features for the NME magazine in London, and then went on to found Loaded Magazine and edit GQ, and it's this awesome story of a guy who was a bit of a loudmouth at school by his own admission in his brilliant book, Animal House, which I highly recommend. Really, really inspiring stuff from an era... In the 90s where I think there was a lot of kind of get out there and make it work for yourself, whether it was Alan McGee over at Creation Records, Finding Oasis and Primal Scream and Jesus and Mary Chain and just this chaotic story of what Alan referred to as fuck you, bonkers brave creativity. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. So go and listen to that one. We've got Hector Ayuso from Off Festival coming up soon. I am speaking at Off Festival on the Saturday night at 8 o'clock on March the 25th, I do believe. I think that's the Saturday. I think that's right. And I'm heading over there, and I've already been contacted by a number of creatives who are also heading over to Barcelona for what's going to be three days of just pure creativity indulgence, and I'm very excited. Currently planning the talk. I will put it out there soon for some feedback from you guys. I've got a number of possibilities for the talk I'm going to give, and I want to find out what would be the best received and what would perhaps be the most useful. So I'm going to get to that all in good time. But Hector's coming up on the show, and he's going to be talking about Off Festival and why it's really, really important for us humans as social creatures to have such events in the industry. We've got a judoka coming up on the show. That's somebody who fights in judo. And we're going to be talking about fight psychology and the flow states in that world. And it's surprising just how many commonalities it has with the visual communication industry. 
that's a mad one. Look forward to that. Uh, we've got Tom, the editor of The Idler, which is a wonderful magazine about the more contemplative life and idling. Very excited to bring you that one. We've got Adelaide Demoa coming up, talking about her awesome performance art, her British Ghanaian heritage. Um, I mean, that one really gets deep, and it's a brilliant conversation. I headed up to London to chat to Adelaide last week, and I've been meaning to do that for a long time, so very excited about that. We've got B. Jeffrey Madoff, who is... Uh, an American producer and director and he works with all the big ad agencies and designers and he's talking about branding and what it really means and what it should look like for you guys as designers. That's an absolute corker too. So it's all coming up on the show. Let me know your feedback. If you want to support the show, please do head over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get these things. And if you could kindly subscribe to the show, so you get the first alert whenever it comes out and an automatic download. It's a really good way to support the show for free. And also, I mean, if you could do both, it would be absolutely incredible. But either or is also fine. If you've not got too much time, you could leave me a review. Um, and then, of course, it's the good old word of mouth. I see it every now and again. People ask for recommendations on podcasts in the creative industries. And you kind, lovely people will go ahead and tag. Thank you. And please do continue that because it really does help. So that's all the banging on from me. Let's get to it. I am talking to Sam DeCruz, and Sam is very, very candid, very open about um, a troubled, don't know if that's the right word, gauge for yourself from Sam's story, but she had a background that involved growing up with a single father who struggled with alcohol. And the reason I wanted to get Sam on the show is because she's created a magic project that I worked with her on in terms of branding and creating a logo called Child Of. And I thought it was a great idea. So Sam is doing a lot of fantastic work with her co-founders around dependency and addiction and the impact that has on people's lives and the ways of using the arts and creativity and artistic expression to manage those experiences and to deal with them and to let them go. And I think there's just... There's so much shit going on out there in the world at the moment that's tr- that's heavy and um, troublesome and it's painful. And it has a huge impact on our creativity and our mental well-being and I think that it's really critical in these times. Especially with the stuff that we can't conquer. So in my instance, and I keep coming back to this, but the climate crisis is fucking terrifying and it really sends me on bad mental health days and that's a relatively recent thing in the last few years but thanks to the work of some you know some wonderful people there is an increasing amount of information out there on managing eco-anxiety and cbt tips and mindsets and ways of acknowledging those feelings and the fact that we can't necessarily slay the beast so to speak but we can certainly edit the way we respond and our um, positive channels for those feelings and that's exactly what Sam Cruz is doing with Child Of so she tells it better than me we're going to be getting into that big heavy topic of addiction but it's also a brilliantly inspiring story so a big thank you to Sam she's a lovely lovely person um, she's always been really supportive as my own practice it means a lot so thank you very much Sam and I wanted to kind of just shine some spotlight on, on, on what is a really important project. And we're going to be doing more around this stuff, so maybe it will resonate with some of you. Maybe it will be more of a thematic 
nudge in the right direction for your own demons. I don't know. Take what you will from this. I'd love to hear your feedback. Do hit Sam up. She's very um, happy to talk about it. There was a recent thing about, I think it was Brewdog, the Brewdog guys who were based up in Scotland, and they were challenging the kind of decision to add more restrictions, if that's the right term, to the alcohol industry. And, you know, it was going to affect their business. And they were talking about how it's completely different to smoking in regards to that a cigarette, any any one cigarette is going to, you know, is, is scientifically proven to do damage to you. Um, whereas alcohol, when managed and when, you know, drunk in moderation, is actually not quite the same. And it's up to the individuals. And, that, and the fact that, and this was something that Sam contributed to that conversation as a person who's seen this all her life. She said how she agreed completely and that it was always indicative of something deeper, a deeper sadness, a deeper unrest, um, other unmanageable personal problems in somebody's life that tends to lead to abuse of alcohol. And I found that really interesting. So anyway, enough prattling from me. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Do go and find Child Of. I will post the links in the show notes. You can find them on the SoundCloud channel um, and link out. And I will also share them on social. Enjoy the conversation. Big thank you to Illustration X for supporting the show. Big thank you to Sam. Here we go. So I'm from a place in Derbyshire, a little village called Ashover that I grew up in. And I lived with my dad and my brother. Um, my mum left when I was quite young, so I was four. So I never really lived with my mum. So I lived with my brother in a village, very kind of nice, um, lived in a nice house uh, and it was a good school and everything. Um, but living with a single parent at, at, back in those days was kind of unheard of, especially living with your dad. Um, so I think I, I felt quite different quite early on when I was like looking at, you know, with kids and stuff. I felt like I wasn't from a normal family. Um, coupled with my dad, it was a really loving man, um, but he had his own problems and he was an alcoholic. So I had quite a... Um, a different childhood and I'd say early on in like the early years I've got a lot of happy memories I have kind of blocked a lot of I have got like a, a block on a lot of memories I think um, but what it did do because I was as I was like my granny lived with us when we were quite when we were young I think she left when um, I was about I don't know four no about 12 10 or 12. So we had some, like my granny and granddad living with us. They they really looked after us. And then when they left, it was just like the three of us. And then I started to take on the parental role a little bit because my dad, he would be, he was self-employed, but he would do a lot of his work down the pubs. And he was, um, he was a really colourful character. Um, but like I say, he had his demons. And um he was never, he was never like violent or anything like that. He was also always very quite melancholy, <laughs> either really happy, or really sad. Mm. And, um, but as a child kind of growing up with that, you become an adult way before you should do. And I, I took on this kind of parental role, but also um, I was like, I was really quite independent and had a strong idea of of what I wanted and and whatever, and um, 
so I don't, I don't I'd always been creative then I always remember like making because one of my dad's girlfriends she was a dressmaker and mm-hmm. um she did and I don't actually know whether it's her that actually influenced me um I guess it was because we used to make clothes together and I'd see her um stitching and she had like a little collection and she's called Elaine she was really lovely um and she lived with us for like quite a while um with two sons so we had like for a, a couple of years we had like a family <laughs> that seemed quite normal mm. and then when she left I didn't really I didn't really see that much well at all afterwards um and she left because she didn't want to kind of compete with the drinking um but from then I that's I think that's probably when my um creativity started the confidence in using textiles and kind of and working um and I used to do embroideries and kind of like customized clothes and that kind of thing and then um I was always painting and and drawing and um so then the natural route for me to go would be into textiles I didn't think of textiles art back then I just thought fashion because you could it was like a an industry that you could get a job in um so I got it into my head that I wanted to go into do a b-tech I did a b-tech in um in fashion design and then I'd got it into my head that I wanted to go to St Martin's but all of this was coupled with um like really quite disruptive home life um being quite a rebel being out there doing my thing and um yeah that's kind of where I started do you would you would you say I've been writing quite extensively in this new book there's a whole chapter on kind of adversity and creativity and and those kind of hurdles that people have to overcome in early life some of the examples are kind of like dyslexia and ADHD that I've been covering and things like that and then of course in your Mm. own circumstances there's people with their troubles and in in their home did you think any part of that kind of instilled in you a work ethic or a hunger for for for, you know for for your art yeah definitely definitely I think um I, I mean it's it's so much um I think because I'd see people and the way that they looked at my dad. So we lived in a a nice house. It could be like quite middle class. And it looked like from the outside, it looked like we had everything. But inside it was like we were skinned and um, couldn't answer the door for in case the bailiffs came around because, you know, things like that. So it was a very kind of like, um, like kind of polar opposites going on in in the home life. and I'd look at my, I'd look at people and I could see the way that they looked at my dad and there was a lot of shame attached to it. So I had very much a thing like, I'm going to, I wanted to prove something. I wanted to prove something to them and to myself that I could do, I could do, like I could be successful. And I mean, my my dad, he was, um, he was a really well-educated man and I got an auntie and uncle who done really well they're over in Australia so I had people around me who had been who had been successful and I think I kind of got a warped sense of what success was and it all centered around um I guess it centered around money and doing well in in something and build something and um so I think a work ethic I got because I I did always have um I always worked in pubs (laughs) and 
but I don't know. I think um, it did definitely shape who I who I was and who I've become. Um, a lot of good things and a lot of bad things, you know, like mental health kind of issues. But I think also proving to people and all, but also caring way too much what people think. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, again, what you said there about growing up too quick, I think that that probably goes hand in hand with mm. perhaps not being of an age to have formed a strong enough identity to brush that stuff aside. You know, we all we all, uh, yeah. we all we all know what that's like at school when you you just want to be accepted and be a part of not necessarily the popular kids, but you want to almost be invisible, I guess. Um, well, a lot of kids do anyway. I, I certainly did. I was very happy to be, you know, just kind of a bit of a social in betweener. I was the, the 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 popular kids didn't want to beat me up. The the nerdy kids kind of liked me. I was very much middleman. I I was happy with that. Um, yeah. It wasn't until art college in seventeen eighteen that I got any of the crumbs really of identity. So I guess. Yeah, going back to that kind of idea of success, you know, you, you're way too young, aren't you? But then obviously not too young to not pick up on the fact that people do make assumptions and do judge and, and look in. Yeah, I think uh, so back in the when uh, that I, I, I call it su- wanting success. I think back then it was probably more acceptance. You know, I think now it's some it's, it's kind of changed over the years. But yeah, I think back then I never felt and I still don't know <laughs> to a point, never felt like I fitted in anywhere. And when you say about like forming, forming your own identity, I feel like the you form your identity to fit in the surroundings that you're in. So like I became very hard. I was like, I was like, um, I wouldn't give a shit about what, you know, people and I'd be like, you know, I don't care what people think about me. Of course, I really did. So like a very, very hard exterior, but really like just like a child inside. Um, And there is a thing that, you know, if a child grows up too quickly um, and appears like an adult, um, and people would be like, oh, you know, well, she, you, would, you were doing all right. Yeah, no, you were fine. You were fine. You always were so mature. You always held yourself. But I think what happens is you almost stay at that point emotionally in a lot of ways. So when you become an adult, you don't feel like an adult. You still feel like a child, mm. um, which is, um, I think, you know, just in terms of taking things personally or not being as confident or your self-esteem being a bit lower because you still have a lot of childlike mentality, even though you were very mature. Do you know what I mean? And it, does that make sense? It does because I, the way to look at it, I guess, is that you've almost had to take a leap and miss some steps. So it's like, mm. yeah, you've landed maybe four steps ahead of where you should be, which, yeah, okay, you've learned that bit where you've landed quite quick, but then there's bits that you've missed out entirely, which are those incremental maturity steps. Mm. perhaps you know yeah which I think those are the ones that form the self-esteem and they form like if you don't feel secure as a child and like really understand what it's like to um to be able to say anything to your parents and know that they're going to love you know they they might disagree with you they could tell you off but they're really going to love you and um and work through those emotions with you and they're totally accepting and you know all of those feelings of fe- of security you know 
you know, when we talk about kids, if that's one thing that you can give them is that feeling that it doesn't matter if you live in a massive house or a really small place, if you can, if they can feel secure when they come home and they know that when that door closes, it doesn't matter what's gone on, you, they, you, you know, your parents could be cross with you, but they love you and they have just secure, you're secure. That is, that's what self-esteem is built on. And if you can give that to your kids, then you, you know, you're winning. <laughs> um, and unfortunately I didn't feel secure. I felt like I didn't have a secure place because it was always quite turbulent mm. um, throughout, even like going into my like teenage, well, I left home when I was just just literally up after my 18th birthday. Um, so it never really had that security until quite late, well, later on. So Darkest Star, I mean, because we'll, we'll get onto Child Of, which I guess is going to thread what we just talked about, um, mm. it's that together. But I'm interested in the kind of, you know, the career you've done before Child Of. Okay. So when I... Um, I really wanted to go to St Martin's and this is this is quite incremental to to the story is like I wanted to go to St Martin's and I didn't get in and I said to my dad right I want to redo another year do a foundation I think I need a bit more of an arty portfolio and he was like I'm not going to support you in that because I've got a place at Derby but I didn't want to go to Derby I just wanted to go down to London and he was like no I'm not going to support he was drunk at the time I've never spoken to him about it sober so in my head he was like I'm not going to support you me being probably more dramatic than I should have been was like right he's kicking me out so I was like, fuck you, I'm going. So I moved out of home at that point and then started living on my own and supporting myself. And I did a year foundation and um, an A-level and then I got into St. Martin's. So I was really like, at that point, I felt like I'd won. <laughs> yes, like, I really did. It was like, it was amazing. It was such a buzz. But then when I got down to London and started doing my degree, in my head... I'd got in, I'd won. It was almost like the gate that the race had finished. <laughs> really, in hindsight, it only just fucking started. Excuse me, can I swear on here? <laughs> Is that cool? <laughs> I have got a bit of a, a swearing mouth, I'm sorry. But um I was like, oh, it like when I look back now, I should that's when it should have kicked off. That's when my work should have really kicked in, but it didn't. I was like too busy in such a mental headspace. And I, you know, I did work and I got my degree. Um, I certainly didn't take um, ad, like advantage of all the the um, opportunities that were offered to me, um, which is something I look back and I get I get quite cross with myself. But actually, you can't do that because that was where I was at at the time. But um, yeah, so I did fashion design at um at St Martin's and then after that I just I met my husband when I was in my last year and then we decided to um to go traveling as soon as I finished so we went traveling for a couple of years um and then when I came back we just um that's when Darkest Star kind of I started working I got really into the technical side of things because I thought if I'm going to start my own label I need to know how to physically do it rather than just design and also, and I remember like when we had a conversation before and you were saying about um, knowing who you are 
like I've always been a maker I've always liked the physical side of things like rather than I'm not interested actually in seasons or consumerism or fashion as it were I like making so if I'd had that conversation that we had when I was choosing which degree to do I would possibly have thought about going into textiles art because it was a different it would suit me more whereas fashion really didn't suit me um in hindsight but um so I went into the whole technical side of things when I came out and then um when I had my first child we decided to start Darkest Star which is um a Depeche Mode song if you know Depeche Mode (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, and it started off with like making handbags. So we were thinking like, how do uh, the the idea started of um, how do I combine art with a product? Because I'd been, I'd always like you know through uni, it was all about a product. So, but then I was really into art, and I was thinking, how can I combine the two? So we started off, and the beauty of working for yourself and not having. I didn't have a business plan. I, it, I, it was purely designed through emotion, which in one side has been really good. On the other side, commercially, it's not great um, because I didn't do everything that you should do, like you know, looking at your customers and um, seeing where the gaps in the market are, all of these kind of things. I didn't do that. I just literally went emotionally and think, right, well, we'll do this. And then so I do something. So the Darkest Star story has really kind of like twisted and turned. But um, it's meant that I have been just purely creative with it, not a commercial designer. There's always been enough. I've always made enough money and had enough um, positive feedback um, to just keep going. And so that's why it, I've had the label for like 10, about 13 years. And, you know, we've been in different stages. <laughs> the best one, well, not the best, but the most interesting one was um, we, I got the front window of Coco de Mer, do you know, um, in Covent Garden. It's like a, a luxury erotic kind of store. And they had a, um, a store down in Brompton Road and they gave me the the window. I, I was doing a project called Pleasure Garden. So looking at Vauxhall um, back in the Victorian era, like Vauxhall um, Gardens, and it was like a pleasure garden. And at night it would get really debauched. And so I was doing like looking at orchids and making sculptures and um, just doing like, just getting really creative. And um, somebody introduced me to Sam Roddick and she really liked the products she really liked the idea of it and she was like oh would you open the window I was like yeah that would be amazing and I was thinking what can I design in the um to stay in the store after the exhibition's over so I designed these bondage pillows which had orchid kind of um prints all over them and it was about it's about softness and luxury and um it was not hardcore at all and then I had these scarves and I swear I I designed them for aesthetically and I remember one stylist saying to me like I really liked them but I just don't know what I would do with it and it was like a leather collar um and then like silk like long silk um scarves hanging off it but when Sam Roddick saw it she was like oh god I really love those bondage scarves um 
that's something I've been looking into. Would you want to develop it with me? And I'm like, yeah, of course. <laughs> so we developed it together. We put like cuffs on the on the bottom and they sold really well. And then so, of course, I'm thinking, because my head, I'm such creative, like I go from one thing, like one idea to another, thinking, oh, well, I can do this and I can do that. So I came up with a collection that then sold to Amsterdam and New York. And like, I had quite a few boutiques and it was, <laughs> it was going really well. Um, and that, yeah, that was a really good time. That was good fun. Mm. And from that, we then got into London Fashion Week with the British Fashion Council and got into um, Vogue and uh, Gigi and Bella Hadid wore our pieces in V Magazine. That was always like, that's when I was like, oh my God, yeah, I've made it. <laughs> Didn't make any money from it, but like creatively, I felt like I'd kind of been accepted all my designs were accepted in amongst the fashion bunch yeah that's really interesting I love that <laughs> yeah it's funny it's funny and then from there so then I started thinking well I you know it's not selling as much as I need to and I started doing these sleeves like leather sleeves um and they look really cool so like all the stylists really love my work because it's quite edgy and so I get into the magazines um, and I did sell quite a few pieces um, in boutiques and stuff. And then so I was thinking, OK, so I what I need to do now is build the collection a little bit more. But of course, it was such a niche market, <laughs> like high quality, luxury, leather, bondagey looking pieces. <laughs> and then to then do a full collection which we did at London Fashion Week again um and it just didn't work because it wasn't commercial enough and I'd be competing with you know people like I don't know uh not not McQueen but that kind of like that kind of price point up to you know like you were looking at like thousand pounds for a jacket or something which is a lot of money you know as whole uh, you know so um and then it was kind of working out selling direct to consumer or wholesale and then you have to do collections every season and it was all just got a bit much and I think basically what happened is it just felt like it wasn't it just wasn't quite right um so yeah that was in 2018 I think mm. so well I mean child off then so where was the initial I mean I mean I say initial thinking of course you've got this you know very um raw backstory that that that, that I guess must inspire the project mm. what was the what was what were the, were the first seeds of kind of transitioning I mean is it a transition from that or is this is this something that's that's just come into your world and it's and it's coexisting with fashion yeah no I think so what happened was um all the way through all the way through this my dad was been, was drinking um and he'd have days of being you know good and then he, then he'd be really pissed I mean he he lost all of his house like the house that we had and then he almost became homeless at one point and he was living in this this house um I don't know what you would call it now 
it's almost like a half what I would imagine it used to be called like a halfway house where people who came out of prison were in there or if you didn't you were waiting for um accommodation like council accommodation so he was living there for a while and then he got a little flat and it was like all the way through me trying to prove myself and be successful and working hard and almost going for this thing was, I was like I'd get a piece of press and it would be validation. And I, I really think that that whole part of my life, I was looking for validation because of all the other shit that was going on. And I didn't feel like I was, um, I, I just didn't feel ever that I was wor worthy of anything. Do you know what I mean? I know that sounds really quite depressing, but I think, <laughs> I think that's actually how it was. Um, but, so all of this was going on. So you'd have these highs and then I'd be going back to my dad's flat and kind of like cleaning up shit off the floor and, you know, just saying to, you know, like, what are you doing? And one minute it would be like really positive the next minute. I mean, it's complete and utter like head fog. And so, um, but I didn't really talk about it. I didn't have therapy. I didn't have any, I didn't really talk about it. And of course, I was talking to my husband, and I've got like two kids. But um, there was a there's always this thing of like, I'll deal with it. This is my problem. Like, don't worry about it. I'm not going to talk about it. I'll keep it all in. I'll make sure see if he's all right. And I mean, it was really like it was actually really really hard. Um, and then when in 2015, and it was just before my 40th, um, he um we went to the doctors I mean it, it got to the point that we were I say we my brother we'd be driving up and he would just be absolutely crashed out in this little flat and it was I was starting to get the the doctors involved I had to it, it was getting it was getting really bad um because everybody when we talk about alcoholism we don't really, nobody really talks about actually what it's like, especially towards somebody's end of life. It is really messy. I mean, really messy. And um, to deal with your parents um, in that situation, when you don't have, if you don't talk about it, it can, it really, like it's on you, it's, it's heavy on you, like all the time. Mm. Even like a phone call, I'd be like, is is he drunk is he not like and if he was he'd be slurring I'd be like dad you've had a drink and he'd be um no no I haven't I'm like well if you haven't had a drink then I'm going to get the police to come around and the, um, the ambulance because you must be having a stroke because you're not speaking properly and then it would come out of course I've had a drink but so all of this was kind of um kind of going on and then just before my 40th he um was told and we were with him in the doctors he was told he got a year to live and that was like, okay, this is really, really bad now, Dad. You've got to sort this out. Anyway, long story short, he um, he went to Australia to see his sister, and she was amazing. He came back. I mean, this is like a 70-odd-year-old man travelling across the world. See his sister. She really looked after him. And he came back like a different man. Like, he was he looked well. He was like, he was like okay, you know, the hope is still there. <laughs> And um, and then he, one of his friends died 
and he went to the wake and he had a drink and it very very quickly after that it went downhill um and that was in 2015 and um he went AWOL for a couple of days and then John and I my brother went up to see him to and um, we found him and he was still alive so he he was kind of like three days he'd been on the floor but he was still alive and um when I found him I looked into his eyes and I was like fuck's sake like if something has to come from this like this moment of pure horror something good has to come from it otherwise what's what's it worth like what's this all this about and um and I've always made art projects out of my emotions and like even like darkest star and like the erotic thing that was probably me wanting to like feeling like a a mom who's lost all you know like who's feeling boring let's get a little bit of excitement so I went off and did design these things I think I've always channeled my creativity into my emotions and the only place that I had when I was looking at my dad was like was creativity and that's I was like something and at that point that's when it started all kind of like um ticking away and um as soon as I came back so I had to clear his flat out um, once he died, um, I came back and Googled children of alcoholics and a charity called NACOA, the National Association of Children of Alcoholics, that popped up. So I emailed them. I said, look, I want to help. How can I help you? And um, that's where it all started, right at that point. Mm. And my, so, yeah. That's incredible. I mean, it's incredibly inspiring, you know, in terms of the, the use of creativity, because I mean, it's, it's what keeps me level mentally, you know. It's like I, I'm very fortunate in that I haven't had any major traumas in my life. Um, but my own kind of anxiety over the climate and things like that have gotten quite bad in recent times because I know too much, you know. Um, yeah. And it's my writing. My writing keeps me level, you know. It's um, more so even than my art. But but what it, that doesn't matter because it's creativity all the same. It's creative catharsis. And I think it's absolutely vital and i can't even start to speak to your own experiences what you just described there um but i mean is it the only way to manage such extreme experiences i don't know i mean it's it's it's, certainly i i know for sure that it's fundamental to us as human beings to Mm -hmm. create and to and to express ourselves in such ways you know and if we don't i think things you know it's not good to keep things in yeah, I think, you know, like people deal with things in different ways. Like if I was a sports person, I'd probably be walking up mountains and stuff and teaching people how to, you know, use their um, their energy in a, in, in a, a positive way. Um, I think there are different ways of dealing with it. I think when you when you're a creative or even like even if you think you're not the amount of people that I know is like oh I'm not creative and it's like actually you are (laughs) you just haven't tapped yeah no I totally agree with that um but if you can find that space that non-judgmental space so you aren't judging yourself if you can find that space to write or to cook or to sing or to stitch or to paint or whatever if you can find that I do think that you can just 
even if it's just to escape the outside world for a little while. It's, you don't have to even kind of work through, you know, a certain problem or a certain emotion. But if you can just find that space to just lose yourself and find that like meditative place, then it can help everybody, I personally believe. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. Yeah. Yeah. And like you say, it's not, you know, we have this tendency to jump straight to the sharp end of, you know, guitar or arts or whatever, whatever form, like you said, sport there, but it's, you know, again, it's, it, it can be anything, but it's just a something mm. you can, you know, switch off and, and pour those emotions or even just that energy into. I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's vital to have your thing, whatever form that takes. Yeah, definitely. And also, also, I do think that if you can do it with other people, just that sharing of creativity, it fuels your own and it fuels theirs. And it's something like it's really powerful. It's a really powerful thing. So, you know, I think if you are feeling low or lonely, you know, go, go into groups and workshops and that kind of thing even just like online, it's just connecting. I think like for me, addiction is loss of connection with yourself, with with your relationships, with the outside world. Whereas creativity is all about connection and that's connection with your own physical body or like your emotions. And, it, you know, I think that you are connecting to other things that are a little bit more than what you can explain through, you know, for with me through words, I'm not great with words. So like I, that's how I use, that's how I express myself is through what I can do, which is generally with my hands like making. I think you hit on something really important there actually about, and I was researching this quite in depth the other day about the kind of the, the human social condition and the need to, you know, to have, fulfilling relationships in our life and um and it was very interesting so it was you know there was statistics about you know mortality rates for people who don't have that very mm. very 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 fascinating stuff you know i mean it, it was quite clear you know that that it's causes you know physical ailments and and um of course mental issues and the likes um oh yeah totally i mean if you think about it i don't think it'll be long until work like creative workshops are prescribed by doctors i think uh, we're starting to see them prescribing like the calm app i think it's either calm or one of one of the apps that promotes kind of um mindfulness that's being socially prescribed now and i think there's more research going into it all the time and i think it, it at some point i mean with loneliness they are telling people to go and join like social groups and um and this is coming from the doctor rather than you know just just from friends um so i think you know creativity is not far behind all of that i think though there's so much research at the moment talking about how it helps you um you know yeah. mentally well there is and and this was something that came up in my chat i had recently on the show with Professor Anna Abraham, who was amazing. She's a neuroscientist and psychologist specialising in creativity. I think I mentioned it to you actually during a previous chat. Mm. I was about to talk to her. And um and yes, you know, she talks she talks about that and about the neurological side of it and of, of creativity. And 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 um there was a paper that she talked about in a previous podcast that I had researched, and this was about flow states, which was something we talked about quite a lot. And it was about flow states and the tendency for them to be environmentally friendly. 
So, you know, we're talking whether it's workshops, arts and crafts, in physical intimacy with loved ones, um, going for a walk and a talk, all these things that, are, that help us to enter a positive flow state. Um, yeah tend to be quite kind on the planet. So it was talking about how we start to reshape, you know, they, this paper called for the need to start reshaping society because it's just better for our emotional well-being and it's better for our, you know, sustainable planet too. I just found it really yeah. fascinating. And it, the, the fact that this is happening now, this is being recommended, shows we're at this crossroads because you've got the old order almost doubling down on, you know, fossil fuels and everything else. Yeah. Then, but then you've got this amazing uprising of consciousness about, why we need these relationships. I mean, COVID was a great example of how people turned to creativity as almost a coping mechanism in some cases, because we had the time on our hands, you know, yeah. um, and wanted to fill those hours. It, it really depends on the individual. Um, but I think, I mean, I'm guessing that the social side of this is plays a huge part in your decision to start child off. The main reason why it started and that my thoughts behind it was if you have two children living in the same kind of environment, and that's an environment, you know, with addiction or um, alcoholism, which is obviously the same. Um, if you have two children living in those environments and they retreat into creativity, they, they find that space for themselves um, to get away, you know, whether they're drawing or painting or making music or whatever. If you've got those two children, one of them could use their creativity and achieve a career from it and have a fulfilled life through their creativity, where another the other one could go down the same route as their parents. And I was really interested to find out what is it, what is it that makes that person, that child, kind of... Um, use their creativity to to do well in life and so um it is just really as simple as as that and then so I started interviewing adults who have been touched by addiction um just to see like what you know is it is it mentorship or is it um accessibility to to the arts or you know what what is it that we can offer like I want to learn something it's not just about well selfishly since doing this project I'm actually being able to find my own voice which I think I've suppressed for many years um and it's I've been really just trying fighting to find myself creatively it's always been there it's always been massively present but I just don't think it's been a true voice and now through this this project I'm actually being able to find actually what I want to say um so there's that side but then the other side is I want to I want to get some hard information so we can go to people who make decisions on funding and that kind of thing and say look it is so important that we support schools or we support youth centers if there are such a thing anymore if they've not all been turned into bars do you know what I mean like you know, we on one hand, you we all know how much creativity matters, but on the other hand, where where's the money to back it up? You know, where's the money to actually start investing in our our youth and our the people who need it the most? So the the project it's, it has come from a very social side as well as a selfish side of me, my creativity. <laughs> Yeah, but the, the the it feeds each other, you know. It's I don't I I wouldn't even say it's selfish. It's if you don't feel energized by it and belong to the project, then how could you possibly give that to others? You know, I think yeah, 
I think you yeah. have to be. I mean, selfish, I think, is the wrong word. I think it's almost, yeah, you know, if you don't find fulfillment to begin with, the person who's creating it, then because it lives. We, I've had this conversation many a time recently with people that when you make something and there's love for the thing you're making and there's some positive energy going into that or catharsis, whatever it is, it lives mm. in the product. It's always, I think. So I think in charge yeah. You're, I, I, I've got that already from just going on the website and reading the way that, you know, the manifesto is written and that kind of thing. It it already lives with that energy, which is really positive. So it's, I wouldn't even call it selfish. I think it's just, you know, you have to start there. Yeah, no, I mean, my my actual, my own practice, my own art practice is like, is is being fueled is is literally being fueled by this in 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 one sense because I'm using um, other people's experiences to like create my artwork, um, and but also because it is opening up so much more, so I'm able to do my own thing as well. So it's like it is a total win win situation um, because, and like I say, you know, you work with with people who say that they're not creative and then they're buzzing because you've shown them very simple steps like if you do this this and this and layer up an image you know so very very simple stuff but you wouldn't know it unless you knew it and then they come out with a picture that they're happy with and like the the amount of like the energy is so beautiful and it fuels you and I think like I know, I know this that could sound like really do good, but I th- I really do believe that if you are going through trauma, bereavement, or you know, any any kind of like if you're if you're in trouble and you're feeling mentally in trouble, I think if you have the ability to help the people, then you will it, there is part of that which will heal you. And and I think that that's there's so there's we don't really talk about that enough that like just helping other people really really helps so if you're you know with this like the social side of child of um is about working with people and I want to give you know I look back on my career like 25 years in fashion and working and making and you know creating and always always have got a project at one point in my life I used to look back and think, I'd be like, oh, my God, like, I'm so skilled and, like, nobody gives a shit. I'm never going to, like, do anything with my life. You know, really down on myself, even though, like, other people looking in would be like, oh, no, she's done all right. But I'm so down on myself and so down on everything I've achieved because I hadn't reached these thing of success, a, a word which I didn't even understand myself what success was, but I was wanting to grasp at it. Um, so all the skills that I had, I didn't value. But now, now I'm doing workshops and I'm working with the people and I'm just showing them things that I've learned along the way. It's made me value myself and it's made me value my skills. And it's, I know it's it's made me look back at my career with joy now, whereas not so long ago, I'd look back and think, well, you failed. Well done you. You've put all this bloody work in and you've failed. Whereas now I'm like, actually, no, you've done all right. And that's because of working with other people and not expecting, not wanting outside validation for it anymore because actually there's real happiness to be gained from from working with other people and sharing your knowledge. 
Yep. No, there really is. And I'm, as we discussed at the start with the writing stuff, it's the same um, for myself. But when it's, when it, yeah, God, when, when, you, when you know that people have suffered in the same way you have or had the same hurdles you've had to overcome in your life and you can in some way help them, you know, through that and create this social scene, I think it's, it's incredible. It's as good as it gets, really, in terms of the worth of creativity and what you get and putting things out there. I think it's just, um, yeah, when you can find but- that. Yeah. When you get so when you get a group of people together who have all been like some of the like, there's one artist that I work with called Justina and she's like she's been she's been through quite a lot. I'm not gonna go into a, all of the her, her personal story because I don't think that's fair for her, but she's been through some real shit and she's the most giving, beautiful soul, and she's painting like some portraits on um, we're doing like a mural because um, we partnered with Saatchi Gallery and in March we're having an exhibition. They've got a street art exhibition on and I've got a group of artists, like professional artists, who are um, working on like these five panels which are going to fill the whole uh, wall of one of the galleries. And we've got portraits like there. She's painting a portrait. She's so talented. And, um, and then we've got this guy called Carl Cashman who does amazing um like graphic painting so it's all geometric like quite 3d and he he's just painted a hundred foot wall in Saudi Arabia for a street art festival and he's got an exhibition over in um in America at the moment with think space he's like in a group exhibition he's a really cool guy and he's in recovery and has talked he talks about his um addiction so I've got people who are established all touched by addiction and then community groups that there's one called drug link from Hertfordshire it's like a rehab center and then leap which is London East alternative provision school and their kids have been um, displaced from mainstream school so I'm not saying that any of those are addicted or any of their families are but I know that a lot of them could probably do with some support like through creativity because if they've got any problems going on like I did at at, at that age then I would want somebody to like be a little bit you know like as a mentor so that's kind of why I go into into that school and the school is incredible they do some such amazing work and then we've also started working with Centrepoint so I've got these three social groups or like organizations a group of artists and we're all working on this this mural together it's bloody amazing I'm not I'm I'm just kind of like helping out (laughs) and kind of bringing it all together so none of it's my work but it is it's beautiful it's like I can't wait to see it up um but just the energy and like the artists are giving themselves over and, you know, spending so much time on it for me and well, for everybody and for themselves as well. So yeah, it, it's, it is, it's cool. It's, it's a good, it's a good spot to be in. And mm-hmm. I keep reminding myself that this has come from that moment of horror, but actually look what, what's, what's come from it, you know, well, this is that's the that's the crux of this this sort of chapter about adversity and creativity and i'm a great believer in that in that you would not choose any of this adversity no one chooses to have that and you would probably end it with the press of a button if you could but mm. 
that's not to say that there are not great strengthening things that come from that. And as you know, your story is showing here that the, that actually it gives you a unique position to be able to then take that pain and, and and turn it into something good and give it to others. So, you know, and I love the thing about the school, it's almost preventative, you know, it's almost recognizing that actually, you know, this yes, there's the people who've suffered greatly and have experienced addiction in some way. But actually, you know, the, of equal value is trying to trying to put things in place to give people what you found down the down the road earlier, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think as well, so like if when I'm at the school, my main thing with wanting to work with these particular kids is when I was when I was that age, I didn't talk about my dad being an alcoholic, really, because you don't you don't want anybody to disrupt your family life because you love your parents you know even though he was a bloody idiot <laughs> and one moment I'd hate him the next minute I'd love him you know but I have a really deep love for him and I, I did I adored him um and I wouldn't want to be taken away from that environment so there's so much secrecy around addiction in in a family home especially for the kids and also when you get a little bit kind of like a bit older you've got that bravado it's like I'm all right you can't touch me I'm fine I'm doing it I'm cooking my own tea I'm doing everything that I, I'm looking after myself so don't you tell me what to do so you have that for me anyway I really had that kind of like prickle um but when I go in to see the kids if I, I like, they'll say, why are you here? And I'll tell them about child off. And I'll say, well, my dad was an alcoholic. And, um, you know, when I was your age, I, you know, I thought I was all right. But actually, I needed a bit, I needed a bit of support, but I didn't really know that. So um, anyway, you know, if you've ever got anything that you want to, you know, share, then that, that's fine. I can, you know, help you out. And I, I'll just, I just want them to know that it's all right for them to, to say that they're not all right and um then I obviously because I'm not a counsellor I'm not qualified in that way I'd obviously speak to the school and you know um but sometimes them just just talking about it so then I give them permission to talk about what's going on with them because I'll be so open with the relationship I had with my dad mm-hmm. yeah you and to break the... oh, no, sorry, sorry. Sorry. no sorry I thought you finished I didn't mean to jump in so I I truly believe, like, to break the cycle of addiction, we have to concentrate on the child as much as we concentrate on the addict. So for the child, we give support. Um, for the addict, we try and erase the stigma attached to it, and we just talk about it all, the whole, the whole cycle of it in a way that is like, you know, everybody is touched in some way how many degrees away, I don't know. But, like, we all know somebody who's struggling, but mm. not that many people really talk about it. And, you know, and how do we talk about it? Like, how do we tackle if one of your work colleagues is always pissed and you think, actually, one, that's not great for work, but actually what's going on with them? Like, how do you approach that? You know, this uh, it's difficult, isn't it? Well, I mean, God, yeah, of course it is, because it's hugely personal, hugely complex and very deep rooted because, you know, I, um, like my dad's dad, he died. I never met that granddad. He died. Um, he was about 40. I think he was a big drinker. And, wow. um, and 
one of my closest friends had alcoholic mum, dad and stepdad. Um, so, you know, it was around him his, his whole life. And um, and it is, it's really hard because these people were all interesting, funny, talented mm. people. Mm. So the question is, well, why would they do that? And it's because, you know, because they've like anyone else, they've got their own problems and, and, and they obviously... I don't know, but you know they've they can't they don't know. I, I I don't know. I can't start to explain why someone goes down that road, but it's you, and that's why it's hugely complex. You know, it's yeah. and so therefore when that's passed down to a child who, as we said before, hasn't yet learned their own identity, and I, God, it's I mean, then you've got a real kind of puzzle on your hands. You know, you really so, have. Because it's the emotional thing as well. So, like, if your if your parent isn't available emotionally to you because they aren't able to cope with their own emotions, then the child being quite um, egocentric as as a young one as as you have to be as a child growing up. That's not like a, it's not derogatory. It's like you um, you then automatically assume they're not emotionally available to me. What have I done? What have I done wrong? How have I? So then you start to, you, you have those feelings and you can carry that through to like adulthood. Like even the other, like the other day, I got a, um, I got a message from somebody like, oh, Sam, you're all right. Um, are you around later for a chat? And it's a colleague of mine, like from one of the, the partners that I'm working with straight away. I get a rush of adrenaline rushing through my body thinking, oh, fuck, what have I done? I've done something wrong. I Like, what? And, and within a millisecond, I've got all these scenarios running through my head. Like, what have I done wrong? And she wanted to talk to me about something that was really positive. <laughs> and but before I'd even like, before I'd even like spoken to her, I just assumed that I was in, I was wrong. And that comes from a childhood thing that like, you know, and I'm 48 years old. So these things can stay with you for, for a long time. And we can't underestimate that of yeah. how how a child do you know Gabor Mate? Have you um Yes, that name sounds that sounds really familiar. So tell me because I, I don't know where I know it from. Maybe Laura's been listening to podcasts with him on, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean he's he's everywhere at the moment because he's just written a book called The Myth of Normal. You'd really love him. He is so he's such a open thinker when it comes down to um lots of things like ADHD, um, because a lot of people who are like a lot like of addicts are sufferers of ADHD who haven't been um diagnosed because with the um like coke for instance and amphetamines they actually level can level somebody with adhd out a little bit and brings them to some they feel a bit straighter so then it's very easy to start taking it all the time so you know i think he he's just he's brilliant and he he comes back to with addiction um as being always coming from a place of pain so he's you know he, he anyway look into him he's brilliant he's he's absolutely brilliant he's done loads of podcasts recently yeah that's that's why i know because i think because i'm writing all this stuff and i'm having all these conversations around it his name keeps coming mm. up in that sphere um yeah and it's interesting so you, you know when you said about like the workshops and that the kind of that energy i would refer to mm. it as magic 
So for me, it is. It's just such a pure rush and a pure feeling of humanity and connectedness. Um, mm. I had a really interesting talk the other week with a, a friend I've just met here in Salisbury, who's a, a very young drama and English teacher at a secondary school that's got quite a high percentage of, of I don't know what the right word is, um, prickly kids, let's say. And um, mm. and she just talks, she's, she laments that she's only able to teach drama once every fortnight and it's got such a low place on the, the hierarchy of subjects because she just said it's, it's a different language and it's a different, it's a safe space. And what you find is that the kids who are like the naughtiest click really quickly with it because it's the first time they've encountered a different thing that isn't academia and they can do mm. things that they're normally told off for, like make a lot of noise or be quite abrasive. But but in there it's good because it's acting and it's drama and, you know, she encourages them to throw chairs around and things like that. And it's like she said, when you when it clicks that they're allowed to do this and they can find some ownership in it, my God, the transformation in those kids. But then it, in turn, it makes her sad because it's not, that's just not there for them in any other way in their lives. So yeah, yeah. But there is and just, it's not high on the priority of the schools either, you yeah. know, because they have to tick all these academic boxes. I'm also really optimistic because there's people like yourself, so I'm doing like, amazing work there. And then there's Abby, who's the teacher there. And then I'm, you know, I'm writing this book and I know someone else is writing a book and there's like Gabriel Matty. Mm. This, there's this, there is a, there is a real, shifting consciousness happening and, I, yeah. and I, I think we have to be optimistic that we because we can't rely on government for well as, as we're finding out hey fucking anything at the minute but like in general you know yeah only do so much even if it's really good government so i think we on the ground have to have to believe in what we're doing and we have to yeah find our battle totally and eventually mm. that's there's going to be a tipping point there and i think that it's going to become more accessible to troubled people from you know troubled starts and the like so I definitely yeah, and with your work as well, like writing and the drawing and your style of drawing and your like the freedom and the energy that comes from that. To bring those two together, I mean, like that's like that could be that's magic. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? For for some kids, like they if you could like get them to express themselves through word, like, you know. You could really be helping them to, yeah. to um, I don't know, just kind of tap into something that they can't get out normally. Yeah, 100%. It's alchemy. That's how I see it. It's all these different elements, but it's it's in all of us, that curiosity and that need to express. So once, once you have someone who's, whether it's a workshop or it's a school subject, once you make that first connection and you feel that empowerment, have been able to do anything whatever art form whatever crafty it doesn't have to be even arts like we said before sports just company and this mm. goes back to the flow state thing even just invigorating you know enlivening conversations that's a flow state you know it's like yeah, yeah. You know, we don't have to, i think people always make the mistake of thinking it's um has to be professional or really skillful no 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 it's just it's ways of getting things out that are in there that don't shouldn't be in there or yeah in another form it, you know yeah, and I think it's about being relaxed as well with it, isn't it? And not actually caring about the outcome. It's not the outcome is is secondary. It's the process, and it's just if you can be relaxed and you can just like just go with it, then things fall into place so much easier. And you know, it's yeah, have and we've found, all got it. Have you found through your work? Um, that you've been able to start because I imagine a big part of this is about challenging your own narrative. So if mm. someone's been telling, you know, like you said about the whole, the validation thing and that you've battled mm. with that, um, mm. it's a change. 
in thought processes, is it not? So that, you know, eventually you can start to counter yourself almost, counter those tendencies to revert back to something that's been learned through a trauma or a negative experience. Is, is this something that you're seeing in the people that you're working with through Child Of? Are they able to start considering their own traumatic experiences in a, in a different light, given these new tools? I don't know. I think it's too early to say. I think it's too early to say with all of that. And it's one thing, you know, that I'm really interested in is like quantifying the work that I do. Like, how can we, how do I know that it's making a difference? But the truth of the matter is, I don't think we'll actually ever know how much the work that you do with somebody affects them, because it might be later down the line, like when you're not, you're not in contact with them anymore, that something might click and it'd be like, oh God, yeah, you know, like, I remember doing that. That felt really good. I'm going to pick up a paintbrush or, you know, you, you're never going to know that. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't know. I don't know is the question, the answer to that. I do know in my own narrative, then, yeah, I'm always coming across things like emotions and a of who I think I am and I'm trying to chip away, you know, like who I've kind of like, not who I think I am, but the the emotions that I have around myself sometimes, I'm chipping away at those and remodeling them. Like, you know, it's the same as like neuroscience and they're talking about like changing your neural pathways. And I think that that's what we, you know, you can do. So if you feel, if you feel unworthy or if you feel not good enough or like you'll never be successful or I've got a real thing about placing value on myself and charging properly and like and actually asking for money for for my time I have a real problem with that and that's that's a narrative of not feeling worthy or not feeling like good enough and slowly slowly over the years I'm kind of like you know changing that and now more than ever so hopefully by my going through that, I am always very open with my experiences. So hopefully we can touch people with that a little bit earlier. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That makes any sense. Of course. And I think you hit on the classic conundrum, which is why creativity is still to this day is, is people get it wrong. They don't understand it. Don't think they are it. And it's all it, because it's so unquantifiable because it's feeling and it's, it's a part, it comes, we feel it in parts of us that language can't do justice. It's feeling, mm. it's energy, it's instinct. It's all these animalistic qualities that we have um, that we know and we feel are absolutely right and really valid. But because you yeah. can't, because you can't put it in a spreadsheet and you can't say that's why it's worth studying a degree or doing whatever else, it, yeah. rem it remains this black sheep almost. You know, certainly when compared to academia or other careers and that kind of thing. So yeah. I think um there's a study that i'm looking at at the moment and you will absolutely love it so have you heard of um neuroaesthetics no it's basically the neuroscience so the science behind the way your brain works when looking at art so looking like aesthetically how your brain works and the process it goes through. So, like, um, there's this guy called um, Matthew Pulowski, and he's, uh, they've just been awarded, I think last year or the year before, um, two and a half million euros. And um, great that we're not in the European bloody community now, 
I mean, like, whose fucking stupid idea was that? Because they're doing some really good work, you know. It's like, but he's at the University of um, Vienna, and they've got a study that's going all over Europe, um, and they're looking at how we consume art how can we make it more accessible and they've done a, like um it's called art is so if you um just google art is matthew Pulaski or vienna university it'll come up but i've just read on their website the other day that they did a study of um if somebody's consuming art digitally so even like on a, a laptop or a tablet or a phone i think it was something like I, I'm really my memory is shocking, but it is something like eight minutes. If somebody consumes art for eight minutes digitally, then it has been proven that it will enhance their well-being for you know an amount of time. So then now they can start looking at bringing in are in hospitals you know if you're in a hospital bed or care homes or all these kind of things so the whole study is about how can we make art more accessible but how can we actually get some solid data on it which i think is amazing that's incredible that's really good and i think it's um yeah i mean because yeah it, it's, that that's that's that would be a big step forward you know massively massively they have got they're working with um a guy over here, the Royal Holloway University. Um, but yeah, I'm really interested in in the the neuroscience behind it all because it 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 just works, <laughs> and it's just how how can you describe it for me? It's about how like we all know it works. Let's let's all kind of come together and work out how and make that you know so we can we can talk about it in a bit more of a academic way rather than you know oh absolutely yeah god yeah no the, the neuroscience of, it, of this stuff is really um really fascinating mm. it really is <laughs> yeah so yeah god i mean um yeah that's the thing it's, it's just tricky yeah it's tricky to put it in numbers which sadly to, at some point to get funding to get it you know invested in and broadly important infrastructure it, yeah you know, some aspects of that doesn't there that's the thing it, it really does it really does so i'm like i'm writing a proposal um because i really want to do an ma and um part of it is about quantifying like art activism you know like does it actually work what is all of that you know like we know we hear about it we know about it but like actually if you want to go and get funding for a project or if you want to you know talk academically about it we need to um, have more data and now we're living in a world of data analysis so now is the time to be getting figures do you know what I mean and seeing what works and what doesn't work and that kind of thing so yeah I'm really interested in all of this kind of area yeah yeah it's amazing and um yeah and no, I mean, I'm trying to cover as much of that as possible and actually you know it's if first time really i've written anything that's kind of journalistic and research but i wouldn't say i wouldn't even say research based because it's my central narrative of kind of being fascinated in creativity but for every point i'm making i've got a number of other accounts from various spheres and i'm reading academic papers and on neuroscience and i, just, I love it i really enjoy yeah. it 
this is like a phd that you're doing you're doing your own little phd well it is you know and i've always said this podcast has has proven to be like an unexpected installment of my education because i've Mm. I've had over 200 invigorating fascinating conversations with all kinds of people it's the biggest life education beyond just growing up as a kid you know so (laughs) yeah so what are you going to do with your book then because it sounds like it is like a you know a bible of what's happening creatively now in our in our time so what are you going to do with it is that it needs to be like you know it has to be part of our education system surely or some something along those lines so what are you going to do how well, that's, that's the hope i want to work through connections with schools and businesses and get the thing out there far and wide but also make sure the pieces are accessible because there's a lot of uh, extrapolations from podcasts and content quotes from conversations I've already had so that it exists in audio you know certain bits of it exist in audio format but yeah mm. I, want to talk, you know, I want to do workshops I want to do talks at festivals and schools but also you know uh prisons and and um secure children's institutes you know I'm not mm. afraid, I'm not afraid to take this to kind of people who've really had struggles and might be quite daunting to go and do a talk in front of but I'm not bothered I'm, I'm I I don't will under that kind of pressure you know so I, I yeah. wouldn't want this to just suddenly be like a thing for designers and you know corporations which is absolutely not going to be well don't get me wrong I know that those areas have you know it's as much for them as it is for it's, I want it to be for everyone you know this is yeah what conversations with neuroscientists and firefighters and I've got uh and this is a word I learned recently a judica somebody who does judo <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, excellent. About flow states in fight sports, you know, this is way beyond the yeah. arts. Just yeah, there's a lot of examples from within the arts. Of totally, course, but it's about well, it's about creativity. This is the, it's called the creative condition because it is it's the condition of humanity. You know, what about TED talks? It sounds like this is like yeah. you know I'm up for all of it. That's the that's the plan. I want to really take this to industry and and beyond and and yeah, totally build my thing on this you know yeah I mean it sounds incredible it sounds like the kind of book that I just like one would have loved and obviously would love now but would have loved back in the day when I was making decisions of like you know where I wanted to go but also just um for you know everybody like because creativity isn't it isn't just about the physical aspect of it it's like the the mental kind of creative thinking in the workplace we all everybody needs that you know yeah and to overcome overcome any of the world's problems we're going to need to be really creative as a species that's the truth you know so it's got that as well i think we need to empower people and change the way people think so yeah definitely yeah so where can people connect with your project so probably well there's my website um which is child dash of um, dot com and then also instagram which is child of project child underscore of underscore project um on instagram and if anybody wants any information or any support um if they're touched by addiction in any way um either their own or their parents um they can get in touch with me like i say i'm not a counselor i'm literally just through my own experience but i can put you in contact with um other organizations who have got the infrastructure to help and support in in like more official kind of ways brilliant that sounds really really cool well that I mean, it's been amazing and i'm excited to see where it, where it goes how it grows yeah 
Yeah, thank you. And um, in March, so 1st of March at the Saatchi Gallery, our exhibition is going up. So anybody who wants to head down there and they've got a great street art exhibition on at the same time. So it'd be well worth a visit. Thank you ever so much to Sandra Cruz for just having the courage to speak openly because, you know, this is something that came up on James Brown's podcast as well, the last episode. And James talked about how difficult it was to talk openly. Um, on the audiobook and to write openly in the book Animal House about losing his mum to suicide because he'd never really spoken about it. You know, this was a generation in the 90s that didn't really talk. It's only really in the last sort of 10 to 20 years that we've seen some serious progression in the conversations around mental health and all the stigma that comes with it, particularly for, for guys, you know, because there is that toxic masculinity aspect of stiff upper lip and boys don't cry and all that and it just has such a adverse impact on mental health um and and you know and what i said to james on that episode was that you cannot underestimate the wonderful ripple effect that you speaking about this will have on people who've also suffered it so it's exactly the same with Sam Cruz. So thank you, Sam, for talking so candidly about these troubles and for allowing me to put that out there because I just, I think vehicles like this, talking about creativity and all the things that inform creativity, which is exactly what I'm writing about in the next book, The Creative Condition, particularly adversity and negative experiences in our lives, it's just incredibly valuable and vital to people that they hear that others are going through this. Uh, so big thank you for that. I hope you took something from it. And uh, at the very least, I hope you found it interesting. And I hope it may give you some armour for the times in your life when you may encounter monsters that you can't slay. Like I mentioned earlier, it's been really cathartic for me, actually, for talking to people like Sam and hearing people talking about the, the monsters in my life. You know, it's just... Um, I think that we are an industry full of neurodivergent people and sensitive, empathetic people. And um, that can really be an Achilles heel if it's not managed properly and if we don't have outlets to talk about these. I don't want to say weaknesses because they're not weaknesses, they're very much strengths, but they certainly have downsides that just create little fissures, little cracks in us that on the bad days can leave us a little low, you know? I think you all know what I'm talking about. Um... Funnily enough, I mentioned earlier I'm going to be talking at Off Festival in Barcelona. I've just finished writing a little something specifically for the festival that they're going to be putting out there in the hands of all the guests going to the festival, and I'm incredibly excited about that. And that's very much in the ballpark of mental health. So there we have it. Thank you very much for listening, guys. Please do drop us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and tell a friend. It really helps. I do this stuff for the pure love of creativity. Um... And I, I haven't been numbering the episodes recently, but we must be coming up on 200 if we've not already passed it. And I do that because I'm just truly passionate about creativity's role in our lives. So I hope you like what you get. We've got big episodes coming up. We've got Tom Hodgkinson, editor of The Idler. We've got Adelaide Moa, wonderful artist and performance artist, talking about British Ghanaian heritage and all the 
amazing powerful work she's done around that we've got hector coming up talking about the social creatures that we are and why we need events like off festival um we're gonna have tom from design week coming on the show uh for who's any any regular subscribers or people who read my columns for design week will see that i've been posting them as audio versions also but i'm gonna get tom back on the show because he was on a long time ago but he's got this awesome course coming up which is about training creative professionals to better work with the press and i think it's really really important because i for one have found that the press that i've had throughout my career whether it's a feature in computer arts magazine um you know contributing some comments to uh, pieces in the guardian the times all kinds of things like that surrounding the creative conversation really really does form a crucial um element of the marketing that we need to do for these creative businesses of ours so i'm going to get tom on and we're going to talk about all that why it's important to be your own brand and to represent yourself and to get exposure and we shouldn't be so modest but there are ways to do that and there are ways to communicate with journalists and media and i think it's going to be a really really big episode so that's coming up as ever wonderful big thank you to the founding and forever supporter of the show illustration x oh and by the way I have just launched a print social campaign. It's a t-shirt design and I am doing that to support... Oh, this has just popped to med and I, and I need to think of the um, the charity name. Da, 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 da. The National Biodiversity Network. Got it. <laughs> there we go. Um, because I believe that we are in a, a bit of a shitstorm in terms of the climate crisis. And if we continue this reckless pursuit of um of capital and economy and everything else i think we're going to be in a bad bad place so i want to do my bit and i've launched a, a t-shirt design it's a social campaign for print social 50 percent profit split between myself and the neuro neuro national biodiversity network who helped to chart species in this country uh, in all of the uk and i think it's a really important cause because we have to keep tabs on the real-time effects of the climate crisis and uh, ecological destruction so it's my personal crusade my personal cause alongside creativity and it's a rather um dirty dark design around money anyway you can go and read the uh, the, the description i've got it up on my social channels now so go and check that one out i'm going to be announcing it on the day that this show comes out on tuesday so go and have a look if you fancy a cool t-shirt do go and grab one support the cause help me get the t-shirt launched you have to sell five to make that happen so there you have it that's enough from me thank you so much for listening guys check out illustration x over at illustrationx.com at we are illustration x on social uh, if you want to say hello at Ben Talon or at Ben Talon Pod, hello at bentalon.com on the email. Have a brilliant week. Stay creative, stay sane. Nice one. Mm-hmm.